Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast. If you're new here, this is the podcast produced for Strategy International, a global think tank that brings together experts from all over the world uh, that bring incredible insight on matters related to international politics, economy, uh, defense, security, the environment, and much, much more. Speaking of experts, we have another great guest uh, on this show again today, Professor Theophanes Exadactylos. He's a professor in European politics at the University of Surrey in the UK. He's a specialist, among others, in European public and foreign policies, Europeanization and politics and crisis. Thank you so much, uh, Professor, for being on the program. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, I, I know that you're a very busy man. Uh, at the time that you're taking to share your knowledge is much appreciated. Uh, of course, I want to remind everyone listening or watching that you can visit strategyinternational.org for any information on Strategy International and the great work that is being done over there. Um, let's get right into it. Uh, just from the just from your introduction, there is uh, one term that is piquing my curiosity, and I wanted to kind of pick your brains a little bit about that Europeanization. Yeah. Uh, what is this? What does it mean? Uh, and uh, how has it evolved? Well, I assume your audience would not like to hear the more academic debates around Europeanization. So let me put it in uh, in very simple terms. Europeanization is a process uh, that uh, happens as a result of the participation of a country in EU uh, European Union structures and the institutional architecture of the EU. Therefore, what we say is that the EU as a set of institutions, as a political system, has the capacity of affecting what is happening at the domestic level, on the one hand, in its own EU, EU member states. Um, and at the same time, the EU member states have the capacity of affecting change in what is happening at the EU level. So effectively, we think of Europeanization as this kind of two-way process um, that is a kind of a chicken and egg problem, if you like, uh, where we, we never know uh, how that feedback loop uh, goes. But effectively, we are talking about uh, the uh, politics produced at the EU level. We are talking about the policies produced at the EU level. And we're also talking about the impact on, on identity uh, within within countries. Uh, and of course, uh, considering my, my other hat in terms of European foreign policy, we can also consider the Europeanization of countries that are not part of the EU, just because they simply participate in dealings with the European Union. Your classic case can be Switzerland, you know, um, highly uh, integrated within the European economic area, but also countries of the of, of Eastern Europe as part of the uh, European uh, neighborhood policy, uh, for instance. It's quite intriguing, this whole concept of, you know, the European Union. Arguably, it is mm -hmm. one of the more uh, successful uh, unions. Uh, but the intriguing thing here is that you know, if you're looking at if we're looking at uh, known, you know, federations or co or conf uh, uh, confederations like the U.S. Mm -hmm. or, for example, Canada, uh, they have their own kind of history and kind of uniting in a federation or a confederation, depending on the case. But there's always been this sense of, you know, we are American or we are Canadian, and mm -hmm. henceforth the Union. Whereas when it comes to the European Union, it isn't the case at all. We're talking about independent states that have their own identity, their own national uh, national uh, uh, identity and customs and, and policies and ideologies, and somehow they all fit under one umbrella, which is quite fascinating. I, I'm not so sure if at the very beginning they even expected this to grow um, uh, at, at the level that they're at right now. Uh, and even if they had thought of this level of success if they had ever imagined it to stay uh united 
Well, let's let's hold off the uh, question of success uh, for the end of of, of this uh, particular segment, uh, and I'll come back to that. But in order to understand the uh, the way the European Union is now, we need to go a little bit back to the origins of it. And here's where the difference with uh, countries like um, the United States, who is uh, which is um, a, a federal. Uh, um, political system can be a little bit different. Um, so if we think about how the origins of the European Union um, uh, are located, it's the end of the Second World War. And this was the effort of Europe uh, as a continent to be able to uh, to work together and cooperate uh, with each other uh, as independent nations uh, in the context of, of peaceful uh, neighborly uh, relations. So what effectively um, was intended in the beginning was for this kind of long-standing rivalry between primarily France and Germany to, to come to an end. Um, at that stage, though, you you obviously have the development of the of the two camps of the Cold War between East and West. Obviously, Russia was 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 an important uh, ally at the end of, of World War II, and it wanted its own sphere of influence. So originally, it was six countries uniting together in in order to um, uh, safeguard the production of steel and coal. Now, uh, as you can understand, steel and coal is the fundamentals of the. Um, or was the fundamental uh, element of uh, the military and defense industry in those days. And therefore, this is where the whole story starts. So how does one move from cooperating in one specific area, policy area, that is um, uh, controlling the production uh, of uh, coal and steel to prevent uh, the um, the exploitation or appropriation of those resources for military purposes to coming up with what is practically today a political union. So we've come a long way, and this is a, a history of almost uh, 80 years now um, where um, what we call European integration has been happening. Now, European integration as a, as a, as a bigger story has had its ups and downs, its successes and failures, um, uh, primarily in the way that uh, this union was conceptualized. It was never intended to be uh, a political union in the classic notion of a federal or a confederate um, set of, uh, of of sovereign countries or of, of of independent regions or what have you. Primarily because, as you described, each uh, uh, state within the European Union brings in its own set of. Um, uh, of, of ideas, its own traditions, its own background, and its own histories, uh, effectively. So the baggage there is quite significant. But when we think about the European Union as a uh, as a as a project of integration, as a project of peace, then what we are actually seeing is is an agreement on fundamental principles and values that bind these nations together. So you know. We cannot claim here, you know, in, in Europe that there is this kind of like European identity in the context that there is an American identity. But what we can definitely claim is that there is something in the air that brings us all together. And we feel this kind of proximity with each other, despite not liking each other at all times. Uh, but that, you know, it can happen in the context of, of, of the U.S. You know, um, Californians may not like New Yorkers and, and Texans may not like, uh, you know, um, <laughs> the, the folks from Chicago. Uh, so um, uh, East, West, North, South, we have similar divisions in the context of the European Union. Some countries manage to address certain issues in a more effective way. Some others have difficulties in doing so. We saw how that played out in the European financial crisis some 10 years ago and how certain outcomes of that can um, uh, be prolonged into, into the future. But what is missing effectively from the European Union, and this is part of the original architecture, is the federal principles, right? Although in theory, there is a movement towards those federal principles, federation and federalism are considered F-words uh, for the context of European politics. So as you can imagine, whenever some polit politician or political actor mentions the F-word, there is a little bit of commotion as to what the process is about. And of course, when we, when it came down to uh, 2016, when um, the UK voted to leave the European Union, it was precisely on the principle of this kind of direction of travel on the feder federalization 
of the European Union that the UK had an objective on, uh, an objection to. So I think, um, I mean, it's a whole separate issue. We can go into details later on. But in in, in that sense, what uh, what the where we are right now is that we have the European Union. It is a political system in its own right, and there is nothing like it anywhere else in the world. And it precisely advances the interconnectedness of these countries and the way that these countries can cooperate successfully within notions of peace. Now, lately, we have seen this kind of divergence in terms of the common values that bind the European Union member states together. We've seen um, uh, elements of democratic erosion across certain member states. We have seen the disagreement in terms of the support and solidarity between member states, not only in the context of the European financial crisis, but also COVID-19 uh, as a pandemic, um, and even in the context of the war in uh, Ukraine that is currently um, uh, in its uh, full first year. So all in all, um, we can say that despite its uniqueness uh, and what we would call in, in academia its sui generis nature, the European Union also has a lot of classic uh, characteristics of any uh, political system that exists around the world. So conflict happens, debate happens. Um, um, things are not definitely perfect. Things may be slow moving, problems may not be tackled, but all in all, we can talk about <clears throat> a relative success uh, in terms of what the European Union has achieved, which is precisely what it intended uh, to do. Its members not to go at war against each other and uh, its members to, to kind of create some common principles of facilitating cooperation and improving the lives of, of, of European citizens um, at large. I want to I want to get back to the idea of this uh, European Union on uh, based on common values and it's obviously very difficult when we look at the diversity of all the countries that are uh, member states yeah. it, it, it would be very uh, difficult to find a common ground on all the countries to kind of agree but the European Union as an institution seems to be pushing this idea that we do have common values as European nations and I think that that has been brought into question in recent years you mentioned uh, uh, Brexit uh, mm -hmm. We've seen uh, certain policies taken in countries like Poland and Romania and Hungary uh, that kind of distance themselves from, you know, the 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 the, the more um, uh, EU centric uh, states, if you want. Um, Italy, very recently with its latest elections, has been um, uh, bringing up a lot of question marks as well, even though it's still very recent. And I want to go back to this. Um, quote-unquote success story that is the EU is there is this just a bump on the road that eventually will end up um, uh, you know disappearing or is this the beginning of potentially a new challenge for Europe where countries are looking much more inward than they were for example 20 30 40 years ago when they were much more dependent on this union one of the founders of the uh, of what was called then the European Coal and Steel Community and effectively turned into the European Economic Communities and the EU as we know it now um, suggested that the European Union will will develop through its own crisis, right? So effectively, uh, what we what we've seen uh, over the last decade or so, um, just around the um, the outbreak of the uh, global financial crisis in two thousand eight two thousand and nine, onwards, is a set of overlapping crises that are happening um, back to back, and they are challenging uh, not only the notions. Um, of uh, our European Union values, but also the ways of doing things in, in politics altogether, right? And we saw how that played out in the context of the United States. Uh, you are, of course, more familiar with um, uh, with that side of things in terms of, you know, um, uh, populism and the divisions that cr were created as a result of the election of President Trump. This is something that happened in Europe as well. So it is part of the global trend within politics, this kind of rise of populist ideologies, this kind of rise of questioning of the fundamental and universal values that we should share, share as, a, as, 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 a, as, as a humanity altogether. And of course, 
you know, this kind of questioning brings about um, uh, challenges in defending those principles, right? In terms of, of democratic values, in terms of representation, in terms of transparency, in terms of accountability, um, uh, and of course, in terms of legitimacy. So within that, within that context, yes, um, uh, the European Union is always challenged by those crises. Some of them become existential. Uh, that was the case with the uh, Greek financial crisis, precisely because it was a make or break type of moment. Um, but on the other hand, if we if we explore crises like Brexit, uh, we saw how that uh, backfired from the original intention that was the kind of uh, disintegration of the European Union as a system. Uh, effectively, when Brexit um, uh, took shape uh, after the referendum and in the context of the negotiations, the EU was very flexible in managing to 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 unite its member state in in, in, the, in that kind of solidarity as in we need to stick together because the decision to leave the EU is not a uh, one that leads to 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 a happy uh, ending um now you know uh, fast forward that to 6 years later when we've had the, the pandemic and the cost of living crisis and all the energy crisis we may hear in you know as being um, uh, a resident of britain we may be actually seeing how you know being outside the european union may have adverse effects rather than positive benefits so in any case the the the, the point here is that um the eu um is um learning from its crisis and um, uh, our, our discussion today coincides with a couple of things that I'm writing right now in terms of the learning processes out of this crisis. So effectively, what we need to think of uh, here is that each crisis becomes a learning mechanism for the EU to tackle the next crisis. The crisis will never stop happening, right? So effectively, we need to, 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 to go to the next one, having all the um, uh, toolkit in our arsenal to be able to tackle it. Um, and so when we look at the Greek financial crisis, for example, it took roughly three years for the EU to come up with a, 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 a comprehensive, consistent plan as to how to tackle the possibility of Greece going bankrupt as a result of, 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 of its own fiscal uh, problems and how this could affect the actual uh, workings of the European Union itself and the Eurozone as a common currency um, area. Now, fast forward this to the pandemic, uh, where we're, we're looking at a transnational, transboundary public health crisis, where the enemy is not necessarily visible, where the enemy is not necessarily someone that you can negotiate with, um, then you see that the European Union managed to respond within, say, about three months and come up with a common sort of uh, policy on, 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 on how to contain the virus and what kind of extra sort of non-pharmaceutical measures could be there in order to support the aftermath of the crisis itself in terms of the um, uh, su financial support mechanisms, in terms of the common practices, in terms of the even the rollout of the vaccine and so on and so forth. And then now, if we look at 2022, with the outbreak of war in Ukraine, it took the EU only three weeks uh, to respond uh, in a common capacity. This is quite uh, impressive by EU standards, and I'll tell you why. Um, especially in the context of um, uh, EU-Russia relations, uh, traditionally what we know is that each member state had its own way of dealing with Russia, mm -hmm. right? So Germany had a different policy, um, Greece has a different policy, France had a different policy, and of course, you know, countries that are neighboring uh, Russia had a different approach to the way they saw their neighbor. So effectively to, to bring together 27 countries in three weeks to be able to respond to an aggression uh, by Russia into Ukraine and to, uh, to, to respond in a way that the EU has never done before in terms of the uh, political rhetoric there and the narrative that they want to develop, the EU presented itself as a, as a global international relations actor um, Commonly responding to to the to the Russian invasion, 
understanding what the principles and fundamental symbolisms are behind its own rhetoric. So, you know, these kinds of realizations did not happen overnight. It's a result of all those previous crises that, that take us from, you know, taking three years to decide on something to three months to three weeks. Hopefully, the next crisis will be able to have something that will respond in three days and, and effectively, you know, create the necessary mechanisms within the European Union to be able to effectively respond to crises in the future. I mean, I guess it also depends on what type of crisis you're dealing with. When you're looking at the the the, the situation between Russia and Ukraine, we affect you know Europe. The European Union effectively effectively has uh, a country that invaded European territory. Whether or not Ukraine is a member state, it's still part of the Europe of Europe uh, as a, as a continent. So it may not have been that surprising that the EU acted uh, that quickly, but we, there are, since you're an expert in, 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 in crises as well, there are, you know, following this, uh, this war, this conflict, there may be actually, there will be potential new challenges that the EU will face. One of which is the energy security. Mm -hmm. uh, migration is another one. Uh, and, you know, I want to talk a little bit of my migration more specifically, but just in general, if we look at the crises that have uh, 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 that have surfaced in the last maybe, you know, more or less 10 years, you spoke about financial bailouts. Uh, we spoke about the ideological differences on the fundamental values that seem to be surfacing as well. Brexit was a big one as well. Uh, and then, you know, we're looking forward at, like I said, energy security, migration and potentially other uh, bigger ones as well. You how is uh, how is uh, how is the EU as an institution, you know, reshaping itself in order mm -hmm. to face these challenges and to make and to mitigate any future ones? I mean, it doesn't take an expert to see that. Okay, there's stuff that are going to be coming our way. What do we do? What kind of mechanisms are in place? What what is being discussed to make sure that challenges like this don't shake? The, the foundations of this union. I mean, Brexit was something that no one ever expected, and yet it happened. Uh, arguably, maybe now they're looking back at that decision and maybe they're regretting it, uh, but it did kind of shake the foundations of the European Union to the point where people were questioning the credibility of this uh, of this union. If you have members that suddenly want to leave, you know, how solid of a union are you? So, I mean, there's... The, the, there's all these challenges and future ones as well that you know the leaders of the European countries must be looking at very seriously uh, in avoiding. Mm -hmm. uh, you're absolutely right there. Um, the, the 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 thing that we know um, uh, of the European Union is that it's not an anticipatory type of uh, policy maker, right? So the European Union does not anticipate the crisis. Yes, of course, everybody knows things will happen in the future. I mean, we are anticipating a lot of um, uh, events happening around climate change, for example, and the climate urgency and the climate uh, crisis as such. We are expecting things to happen in terms of, uh, of the energy security side of things. We are expecting another pandemic in some time um, from now, as, as it's, it's, it's commonly done. However, uh, the European Union is, is, is more of a reactionary uh, type of policymaker. That is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, however, it does uh, slow things down. And this is why I mentioned the idea of learning from previous experience and be, being able to just have the capacity and the toolkit to respond to future crises. Now, you're right. Um, there are different types of crises. Uh, we have what we call the slow burning crisis. We have the fast burning crisis. Now, slow burning crises are easier to tackle precisely because there is more time um, to prepare oneself and to 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 uh, set the mechanisms right in terms of policy making in order to be able to successfully respond to the challenges of those crises. Now, it's the fast burning ones that I think are more important in in, in this case, where um, all of a sudden you know a, a hot potato lands on the uh, on the hands of the European Commission or or the Council of the of the European Union, and they have to actually be seen. Uh, in uh, doing something about it, right? Um, and that's where the whole the whole uh, sort of roller coaster starts. However, the European Union has traditionally been based on this idea of of building consensus, right? In terms of reactions, so you will never never see something that is 
radical in terms of change. You will never see something that is, um, um, you know, a, a shock type of therapy, right? Um, thing is, in the background of European institutions, there is always working groups, there is always um, a degree of, of technocracy that operates uh, in conjunction with the um, with civil servants from different member states and so on. So, in fact, what is happening in the corridors of European Union institutions is precisely this kind of preparation for something that will happen. So, effectively, what we see in the front is effectively like a like an iceberg. We only see like one, ten percent of it, right above sea water. So, ninety percent of the work is already in in prep stage before something comes out in in the public um, uh, sphere. So that is kind of reassuring. Um, and of course, there are uh, policy making traditions that have developed within the the the, uh, the context of the European Union that are passed on. Uh, from um, civil servant to civil servant. So in the same context that we have ways of doing things in our national context, there are ways of doing things at the European Union level. Um, now, uh, just to, to illustrate, Brexit never came as a shock uh, to anyone. Uh, it was it was one of those slow burning crises, mm. right? So um, ever since the, the UK joined the European Economic Communities in 1973, um, we have had about 40 odd years of constant um, blame shifting towards the European Union and this and that. And what are we Brits doing here? And we should be an independent sovereign state. So that kind of debate didn't stop in 1973, but it continued throughout the membership years of, um, of the UK uh, in the European Union. And when the right time came, which was a combination of the European financial crisis, a combination of this kind of rise of populism, um, the influence from across the, the Atlantic as well, um, in terms of narratives of independence and, and, and narratives of taking back control, um, you know, uh, people were just uh, voting um, in, in almost a 50-50 type of split between staying in and leaving. Mm. That may have come as a shock to the British government at the time, but I don't think it came as a shock to the European Union itself. So we've had already signs where the UK was distancing itself from process of the European Union. Um, so um, there was you know, enough time from a European Union perspective to prepare oneself. And in that case, the European Union had the upper hand in any sort of negotiation agreements. Now, obviously, all this discussion around the disintegration of the European Union and so on sparkled e equivalent debates around different member states. We saw how that played out, for example, in France, in the Netherlands, in Greece. Uh, there was discussion about the Grexit at some point uh, as a result of the um, uh, uh, bankruptcy of the country. Um, in, even even nowadays, there were discussions about an Italian exit, because uh, you mentioned the uh, case of uh, Georgia Meloni, for example, in Italy, that is uh, part of the sort of far right uh, political spectrum, with quite um, <clears throat> uh, uh, colorful sort of policies around uh, immigration and uh, cultural purity and what have you. Well, from a political science point of view, and here is, is, is my two cents as a, as a political scientist, you know, there are um, responsive parties, you know, they respond to what the people want to hear, and there are um, uh, parties that become responsible once they enter government. And what we've seen so far in terms of the um, uh, writing on the wall by Italy is that um, Meloni does not shy away from taking advantage of the fact that Italy is a member of the European Union and exploiting all the opportunities she can find in terms of securing things for her own country. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, what we see here is that there is a, a mismatch, a misalignment between rhetoric and practice. Mm -hmm. um, uh, even, even in the context of Hungary and Poland, which have been long on the, on the Eurosceptic side or sort of advancing more right-wing ideas, uh, Yes, but they still are part of the European Union and they still try to operate within that context. Now, it is part of the European Union's own 
modus operandi uh, to actually develop the mechanisms to safeguard its own survival. And to a certain extent, it has been able to do that. Uh, Brexit, as you said, was a, a key example of make or break type of moment, um, and it held up. And we see now, even with war at its own doorstep, uh, the EU is holding up pretty well as, as a as a as a consolidated political system of countries that have come together bound by certain principles. And yes, of course, you know, in the context of of the war in Ukraine, we have some voices, you know, in in Hungary, for example, vetoing this, that, or the other. But in essence, they are not sidelining. They are not moving away from this kind of like common um, uh, policy that the EU has set in this case. I want to talk to you uh, a little bit. I want to get your opinion on this. Um, yeah. Soon as the um, uh, the conflict began in, uh, in between Russia and Ukraine, there were all these suggestions about conflict resolution, one of which being a fast track uh, yeah. as a, an EU member state. How feasible is that? Obviously, we're a year into this conflict. Um, we know that the process is a lengthy one. There are a number of chapters that need to be uh, examined and and completed in order for a country to meet the certain standards of, uh, of uh, eligibility uh, and membership. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, are there any exceptions being made? Are they waiving certain chapters out of the equation? Uh, how feasible is this option of fast-tracking uh, the Ukraine as an EU member? Uh, first of all, I think this movement by the European Union is more a symbolic uh, movement rather than a um, uh, a realization of a promise uh, in this case. Mm-hmm. I think the, uh, the, the point of extending uh, the prospect of membership to the EU uh, to, the, to Ukraine was um, um, a movement to demonstrate to Russia that you know, these kinds of, of, of acts of aggression on the European continent are not acceptable and that precisely Ukraine is part of the European family and the European Union as the kind of safeguard of those common principles and values of freedom, liberty, uh, sovereignty as well, human rights and civil rights, um, will not stand this kind of thing at its own doorstep. So more than anything, I think it's a symbolic move to demonstrate the fact that the EU is there and it is acting as a counterbalance to Russian influence on Ukraine. Um, traditionally, we had pro-Russian or pro-Europhile uh, or pro-European um, uh, forces within certain countries of the of, of Eastern Europe. Um, so I think this is just a a way of of of, of putting a stamp on uh, things and making sure that you know um, the European Union is taking a stand that could potentially diplomatically resolve this kind of crisis. Um, I mean. If we look at at the at the other side of the of the story, NATO membership, uh, for instance, uh, we saw how NATO membership can be fast tracked for countries like uh, Sweden and Finland. Um, but this is a whole different uh, uh, ball game uh, in the context of of EU membership. Um, there is no question that if um, negotiations for accession go forward, that every single chapter. Of 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 the uh, of the acquis communautaire, as we call it, will be uh, will have to be satisfied before it it, it 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 proceeds to membership, and of course this is not something that will happen overnight. We are talking about um, at least a few decades uh, of a process. Um, this is uh, quite important for the EU because the EU should not be seen as favoring countries over others who wish to join. Uh, just because the circumstances are exceptional. Um, um, Countries that wish to become uh, members of the European Union have uh, done a lot of sacrificing, uh, both uh, in in terms of their political capital and their social capital. Um, So, um, you know, if if we see a country like Turkey, for example, has been uh, in the waiting room for um, at least four decades now, you know, it would it would seem quite unfair to receive um, a different treatment uh, compared to Ukraine or some of the countries of the Western Balkans. But what this uh, movement actually does is that it opens up this kind of prospect for better 
let's say, association with the European Union, maybe we can see the strengthening of commercial agreements, energy agreements, defense agreements, maybe some um, um, civil uh, society exchanges, some uh, administrative partnerships, and so on and so forth. That can be well extended into, say, countries of the um, of the South Caucasus, like Georgia, Azerbaijan, or Armenia, or even safeguard the sovereignty of countries like Moldova, and maybe bring some political change in countries like Belarus, which is the last effective di dictatorship on the European continent. So you see, in that sense, this kind of extension of, of, of the membership prospect does not only target Ukraine as a, as a country that is under attack by another nation, but it also creates the kind of uh, space for other partnerships in other countries to develop, but also to give the signal that the EU is there it is a global actor. It is an actor that can affect norms, values, and beliefs within the international system. And that, you know, effectively, it is a good game in town rather than something that can lead to all these kinds of uh, conflicts and, and problems. I want to go back to a crisis that has already began uh, and certainly... Uh, the European leaders are looking at it as a potential uh, major uh, issue to be dealt with in the years to come. And this isn't only uh, following the conflict between Russia uh, and, and Ukraine. It has started way before that, uh, certainly since the, the war in Syria. Uh, with uh, massive migration going into uh, into into Europe, uh, we're seeing, of course, the the. The, the the tragedies that are that are occurring in the Mediterranean, whether it's in Greek waters or Italian waters, um, and certainly now with uh, with the war in in uh, in Russia and Ukraine, we're seeing how uh, devastating it is for people to leave their homes in, in in search of a you know of a better life and of a better um, of a better future. However, this does raise certain secure uh, security concerns. How prepared? Uh, is the EU and you know the the different country the 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 different member states that are receiving these uh, these migrants in taking care of them? Do they have the the the, the economic uh, infrastructure and the health and social services uh, infrastructure as well? Uh, lodging uh, are are these countries prepared to to take in these massive migration uh, waves of migration into Europe? Uh, I'm really glad you asked this question because uh, we are now in the process of concluding a huge research project um, which was funded by by the um, research programs of the European Commission, um, which um, looked precisely at the uh, capacity of the European Union to um, handle the influx of, of, of refugees from across the board and the kind of challenges that are presented in the context of member states, specific member states. Uh, it was a, a consortium of, of 11 universities and, and think tanks, um, which took about three and a half years to complete. Um, and and, and what the, the essence there was, um, is that the European Union um, may have common policies about how to handle uh, these kinds of, of, of refugee inflows. Uh, it may have developed certain mechanisms and may have channeled certain resources to them, um, to these new institutions or to the new elevated institutions. However, one thing is certain that, and, and this is what, what our research is, is demonstrating, is that um, the actors on the ground do not have a clear interpretation of those policies and that creates a whole host of problems in terms of, uh, you know, the, the the pushbacks that we've heard, the inability to uh, salvage um, um, uh, refugees from from uh, <clears throat> from the sea, uh, the uh, ens the ens ensuring and guaranteeing the safety uh, of of people crossing into Europe, but also the kind of distribution of the burden across the board, across the different member states. 
So in this case, there are uh, there are a handful of member states that have been uh, um, disproportionately affected uh, by this crisis because they are entry points. Um, Greece uh, is definitely one of them. Italy is another example, but also France and um, Spain um, because they are at the receiving end of those of those routes uh, of trafficking. Right uh, now. <clears throat> The, the EU, I, in, in my view, needs to 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 be able to do um, uh, the following things. First of all, it needs to uh, to find a solution that manages to distribute the load and the burden of handling asylum-seeking applications and refugee applications uh, in in a more effective way. Uh, it needs to ensure that it also does its um, uh, does its uh, part as a global actor to try and resolve crises that are happening around its own borders. So, for example, be able to more effectively intervene, uh, say, in the Middle East, in North Africa, uh, to to be part of the um, foreign aid and economic development um, uh, initiatives in other countries um, in, in order in, in promoting democracy support in those countries as well. Now, the EU does not intervene militarily. That's not something the EU does, but it has all sorts of different softer tools, uh, such as economic diplomacy, sanctions, what have you, that can help towards that direction. And finally, what the EU needs to do is to actually accept that single member states cannot uh, be responsible for uh, handling um, uh, this issue on their own. So, in fact, we need to see a better channeling of financial resources and instruments uh, down to the member states that are receiving um, uh, refugees and precisely a better uh, mechanism of cooperation with local authorities and international and national uh, NGOs that are involved in these processes in order to improve refugees' life. What we've seen, for example, on the on the Greek islands and in the refugee camps is this kind of mayhem, is this kind of confusion uh, that exists between job descriptions, who does what and why, between the involvement of different NGOs and international NGOs um, uh, alongside the local authorities, and of course, in the system of classifying someone as a vulnerable person in order to receive refugee status or asylum seeker status. And here's where the net is not um, well woven uh, to, to, to provide this kind of protection to people who actually need this kind of protection. Here we find, for example, instances of um, people falling through the cracks precisely because they don't have... Um, um, certain characteristics that are recognized as vulnerable from a direct kind of point of view. Those are invisible vulnerabilities. Of course, there are reasons why people are leaving their countries and the legal framework, the European migration regimes need to actually be able to acknowledge those reasons and successfully process people uh, in that sense. Um, and yeah. The, the example you gave is um, is quite remarkable about um, the, the EU's effort in mitigating these challenges outside of its borders. But we've seen certain cases, for example, with Turkey, where yeah. the financial support was there. Uh, and yet there are arguments that Turkey has been instrumentalizing uh, migration yeah. uh, and forcing them into Europe. We saw the, 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 the near conflict that emerged at the border with Turkey and, uh, and, uh, and Thrace. Uh, at the same time, when these waves of migrants were flowing through Greece, certain members, uh, EU members in the north had closed their border. Um, so there seems to be either this lack of communication or this distrust of mm. these individuals coming into the into the European countries and maybe maybe rightfully so I mean are there the right um uh, resources on the ground to evaluate in terms of security who is coming in I mean we clearly saw the the effort uh that uh that Turkey made mm. in uh in flooding EU with either um 
you know, uh, Islamists uh, or terrorists or whatever have you. I mean, they were weaponized and they were trying to um, to enter uh, Greece and uh, through through various uh, channels. So, do these tools, do these resources exist uh, on the ground? Mm -hmm. Well, one has to be creative about resources, right? So uh, we need to think of what we actually have and how we can make best use of it. That's the essence of public policy making. However, in the context of the, say, the EU-Turkey agreement on, on migration flows that took place some years ago, we have seen precisely the instrumentalization of this because the EU was in need of Turkey. Uh, so in fact, um, you know, um, I wouldn't say... <clears throat> that uh, Turkish leadership is is stupid. Uh, they know exactly what they need to do, and they know exactly how to handle things, and mm. and how to also manipulate their own political environment to make sure that these kinds of of uh, initiatives are um, uh, provide uh, support for the leadership, and so on and so forth. Right. So, <clears throat> President Erdogan really uh, was a um, uh, had had masterfully handled this whole deal in terms of. You know, um, uh, putting the, the the sticks and the carrots uh, to the European Union table. Now, obviously, Turkey itself does not have an, a specific interest in keeping those migrants in in their border. Uh, I mean, beyond the financial kind of resources that they get from the European Union. But if we think about it, why would Turkey want to to import the problem uh, or, or or keep 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 these? Uh, uh, these populations in its own borders. So, you know, it also wants to push this away from its own borders. And we've seen the kind of intervention that Turkey uh, has done, for example, uh, on the borders uh, with Syria some years ago, uh, and continues to do so as well. Now, in, in terms of um, of how the, the deal played out, um, yeah, you, you could argue that uh, there are security concerns, uh, of course, uh, there is no doubt, uh, because uh, in, in every hundred people that come in, there must be one bad person that also comes in. It, it, it's just human nature in that sense. However, one should not underestimate the politics of things, precisely because here we are dealing with um, uh, 27 different political contexts, yeah, uh, each member state has its own uh, political debates and political concerns uh, in the context of Germany, for example, because you, you, you mentioned it as a country, there were fears of <clears throat> the rise of the far, far right uh, in the context of the AFD and neo-Nazi formations and all these bits. So for Germany, politically, it made sense to be able to to kind of uh, stop this narrative of, of 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 securitization that was happening around the influx of refugees. Uh, in fact, uh, far right forces tried to take advantage of certain incidents that happened with uh, um, with uh, certain migrants against women and so on and so forth. Uh, narratives around Islamization of Europe and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, in other countries like Greece, for instance, we had the rise of, 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 of equally of far-right uh, formations, political formations that were actually quite militant in their essence and uh, creating vigilante groups operating in the center of Athens, uh, uh, persecuting people that were of different race, ethnicity, religion, what have you. So, in fact, we do see the political sensitivity of things. And this is why it is important to understand how the European Union can improve its mechanisms of policy response in order to be able to uh, depoliticize certain issues and, and look at them from a, a purely humanitarian point of view or um, an intervention point of view in order to be able to improve people's lives um, in, in, in their countries of origin, but also make sure that they are well-received when they have to be in Europe. Um, safety nets have to be there um, from a humanitarian point of view. And we also saw how different the reaction was to the Ukrainian refugees, right? So we need to make that distinction. We, we, we saw how more welcoming the European Union was due to Ukrainian refugees. And one should ask themselves why. I don't have the the right answer for you um, in this in this case, but it is it is an issue that can be looked at and sort of see, you know, um, whether <clears throat> uh, 
um, people that have different backgrounds than what is considered European are easily integrated within European societies. Now, there are those narratives about the European way of life. Well, if you ask the people who invented this term, there is a whole directive, a directorate general on the European way of life. Um, they will tell you, we, well, we, we don't know what this European way of life is. Uh, I guess respecting each other and sort of tolerating each other. But they will not give you the, the recipe because there is no recipe, mm -hmm. uh, in fact. Um, so it is, it, is a, it is a matter of reconnecting with uh, the fundamental principles and values that brought us together uh, as nations within the European Union context. And realizing that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human and we all have um, uh, a diversity of needs that need to be satisfied. And the role of the policymaker, be those national or European uh, or international, is to actually ensure that uh, people's well-being. Uh, and effectively, if you think about it, the, the purpose of, of being in a democracy and, and yes, uh, you know, with their flaws and uh, and shortcomings, uh, European Union member states are democracies, um, is not the, the rule of the majority, but how the majority can protect the minority from being run over. Very interesting. Uh, very interesting. And obviously, this conversation can go on for hours. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't want to take up more of your time. I want to thank you again uh, for uh, your, uh, your your great insight and the conversation. Um, where can people find your work or follow you or if there's anything that you're working on right now that you'd like to uh, to share? Mm -hmm. So um, all my publications are available on Google Scholar. So if someone Googles uh, my name there, they will come up with uh, all of them. And of course, my uh, university web page. Um, there are fortunately not many people with my name. So uh, you can rest assured that if you Google my name, you will get me uh, and no one else. Um, but equally, um, uh, uh, your your um, viewers and your listeners can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, the hashtag is um, coincidentally at EU foreign policy, uh, and I don't represent the EU foreign policy. But this is what happens when you choose a, a, a handle for, for a class on EU foreign policy and it sticks with you for the last 10 years. So um, that's it. That's where, where I am. Thank you so much. And of course, for any information on Strategy International, uh, anyone can visit strategyinternational.org for all that information. Uh, thank you so much again uh, for, uh, for tuning in. Thank you, Professor, for your time again. Really much appreciated. I would like to thank you for the kind invitation and for the excellent discussion that we've had. I hope that your uh, viewers and followers will enjoy it. I'm sure they will. Thank you again, and we'll see you all in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast, produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.